Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. It's going to be a lot of things that are a little different this morning. And one is, I am not going to read the whole passage. Some of you, if you looked ahead, are thanking me. Others of you are disappointed that I wouldn't stumble through all the names. Don't worry, I'll probably stumble through some anyway. But what I want to do is I want to just read the first and last verses. It's kind of a, a header over this. And then we're going to jump in and talk about this, this unique chapter. So hear the word of the Lord. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Dropping down to verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning, our passage is not an easy one. It's not an easy one to, to think about, to study. Uh, just be honest, it's not an easy one to preach. And yet, when I come to passages like this, I have this, this strange love for them. Because when you get to passages like this, they stretch me. And I think they stretch us. And they challenge us. Because right away, the first question that comes to my mind is, what do we do with a passage like this? Like, why is it here? And it's easy, I think, to dismiss passages like this because they feel so disconnected to our lives, right? Like, none of you is thinking, you know what? If I just had something in the Bible that told me about when these nations got started and how they spread, that's what I feel like my life is missing this week. If that's you, you are, you are in the right place. Now, on the other hand, we come to passages, our familiar favorites, like, we get to a Romans 8.28. We get to a John 3.16. Or even last week's passage on the Great Commission in Matthew 28. We know what to do with those. And we know how they connect to our lives. We're like, ah, oh, I see it. Because the connections are easy and obvious. But when we come to passages like Genesis 10, the temptation is just to skip it or hurry past it because we don't get how it's connected to anything. I mean, it's just a list of names right? So why are we looking at this passage this morning? Let me give you a couple reasons. First, we're looking at this passage because we are whole Bible people. We are whole Bible people. We love the Bible and we believe it is the very word of God revealed to us. And we believe that God has good purposes for what he gives us. None of it is just filler. None of it is just packaging to get to the good stuff. In fact, we believe what Romans 15.4 tells us. It says there, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And we believe that when that verse says, whatever was written in former days, we actually believe it means whatever including genealogies. And its goal, did you notice it says that it's written for us. The goal of all that was written is that we might have hope. So one of our things we're looking for today is 
God, I believe you have hope for me in Genesis 10. And I think it's there to be found. And that's another reason we're looking at it. Another reason we're looking at Genesis 10 is because it's more connected than we realize, both to other places in the Bible and to our lives. So we're going to look at this chapter a little different than we normally do. Typically, if you're just joining us, what I would do is I'd walk through this passage line by line. Instead, what I want to do this morning is look at the big picture of this chapter. I'm going to make several observations as we go, but what I want us to see is that Genesis 10 is not disconnected at all, but in fact, it is crucially connected to four stories. So we're going to look at how this passage connects to four stories. Here's what those four stories are. We're going to see how Genesis 10 is connected to the story of Matthew and the Great Commission, the story of Genesis, the story of Scripture, and the story of you and me. So let's jump right in. First, if you've been with us the last couple weeks, you know we took a break. We stepped out of Genesis and spent a few times in the end of Matthew's Gospel. On Good Friday, we read through the story of Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, and his crucifixion. And in Good Friday service, Pastor Ben pointed, us, pointed our hearts to the blood that Jesus spilt for our sins and to the veil that was split to give us access to God. Then on Easter Sunday, we celebrated the good news that that same Jesus is uncontainable. And despite our best human efforts, the grave couldn't hold him, and he rose victorious over sin and death. But we didn't stop there, right? Last week, we kept the story going. Last Sunday, Pastor Ben showed us that this uncontainable Jesus left his followers with an uncontainable mission. It's what we call the Great Commission. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, if you were with us for those couple weeks, you might have thought, okay, it's Easter time. Maybe they're just taking a detour. We're taking a nice pause from Genesis to talk about the cross and resurrection at Easter. And then, yeah, I can see they, they added on the Great Commission. That kind of makes sense. But here's a secret I'm going to let you in on. It wasn't really a pause. It's still connected. In fact, we did it intentionally because when Ben preached on the Great Commission, you might have noticed that he didn't take a whole lot of time talking about the all nations part of it. Some of you might have thought that was an oversight or I can't believe this. Like he didn't say a lot about missions. Like it's right there. It wasn't a mistake. It's because we wanted to show you that the all nations is here in Genesis. Here in Genesis 10, we find the origins, the beginnings, the foundations of all nations that Jesus sends his followers to make disciples of in Matthew 28. So Genesis 10 and Matthew 28 are connected because both of them show us that God has a plan that is global in scale. It isn't just about Israel or some peoples. It involves all the nations. And Genesis 10 shows us who those nations are and how they came to be. In other words, Genesis 10 is a missions text. So that's how Genesis 10 connects to Matthew. But now let's get back to where we were in Genesis. We're stepping back into the book of Genesis. And let's see, how does it connect to the story that we've been tracking with in the book of Genesis? 
See, in our passage, we have links that both point us backward to what's already come and forward to what lies ahead in Genesis. So first, let's set the stage. In Genesis, we've seen how in the beginning, God created a good world. And he created man and woman in his image to rule over his good creation. Then we saw how Adam and Eve rebelled against God's good rule. And because of their sin, he exiled them out of the garden and sent them out into the world. It did not take very long at all, the next chapter in fact, before brother rose up against brother and there was a division of humanity into two lines of people. The line of blessing and promise through Seth and the line of curse through Cain. Sin got worse and worse until it so filled the earth that God decided enough was enough And he brought judgment against sin by wiping out every living person except for a remnant that he saved by grace. Noah and his family were saved from God's wrath by finding refuge in the ark that God provided. So in this flood, the world was decreated in destruction and then recreated with Noah as a second Adam. Then we saw last time we were in the book of Genesis that God made a covenant to never destroy the world again through flood even though man would keep sinning. And he did something else that was really important. In Genesis 9-1, God also renewed his blessing on Noah and his sons. There it says this, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Well, this blessing is what we're seeing in Genesis 10. We're meant to look back and say, oh, the thing that God told him to do and promised he would do in Genesis 9, Genesis 10 says, look at it. It's happening. The sons of Noah are being fruitful and multiplying, and through them the earth is being filled. Notice how chapter 10 begins and ends, what we read earlier. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Then in verse 32, These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So both the front and the bottom both talk about after the flood. It's saying, hey, this is where things went after the restart of humanity. After God hit reset and said, okay, we're going to do this fruitful and multiply thing again. He says, this is where it went. He's, He's linking us back to the flood. That's what this genealogy is meant to do. It's showing how all the nations that filled the earth got their start in the sons of Noah. Even though they spread out all over the world, it says, they settled in different lands, they spoke different languages, they are all united to one another because all the nations share a common ancestry. Every single one of those nations there has Noah as their grandfather. All along, Genesis has been trying to emphasize not what differences the people of the world have, but what we share in common. And what we've seen is that people of all nations are made in the image of God. This means that people from every nation have dignity and have value. All of us have been made to rule over God's good creation, and all of us have been made to multiply and fill the earth with image bearers. But that's not all that we share. People from every nation also share the same sinful nature inherited from our father, Adam. We are all guilty both by birth and by choice 
of rebelling against our creator and scorning our very maker. Because of that, we all, that's people from every nation, stand guilty before God and justly deserving of his wrath upon our sin. So we share the image of God, we share the nature and guilt of our sin, and because of that, every nation in the world shares a need for a savior. Genesis 10 is meant to show us that despite all our differences, we are actually more closely connected than we think. From the three sons of Noah come the 70 nations listed here. Now, like many numbers in Genesis, that number is not a coincidence. There's significance to that number. As you probably know, seven in the Bible is a number of completeness or fullness, as is the number ten. So when you multiply them together, you get seven times ten and you get seventy, it's implying this is a full fullness. This is, this is all. So what it's telling us is that in Genesis 10, we're meant to be seeing, this is talking about all the nations. All the peoples and nations of the world find their start here in this list. Now that doesn't mean there won't be more nations to come as people groups change and merge and separate, but it's saying all of them find their root here. And what's fascinating is that this is actually something unique in ancient documents. Like if you study ancient documents, there's a lot of stuff we've been talking about Genesis that has copycats in other documents in the world. There are other accounts of how the world got started. There are other creation stories. There's other flood stories. There's even other tower stories like we'll see in chapter 11. But there is not an accounting of how all the nations of the earth got to be where they are. Nobody did that. So it tells us something right off the bat. Okay, this isn't just a typical historical thing that anybody who's doing good history says, okay, chapter 2, got to include a table of nations. No, there's some reason that God inspired, like, I need you as my people to know here's what's going on all over the world. So we just get to keep that in there, in our back of our minds. And while we're pointed back, I said there's something that points back and points forward. So while we were pointed back to our common ancestry after the flood, we're also pointed forward to the fact that we are divided up into many peoples and nations. We see both unity and diversity. And we're told about this distinction at the end of each of the sections. If you look down at your Bibles, the list is divided up by each son of Noah. And at the end of each section, we read something like it says in verse 5. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. Then in verse 20, you got clans, languages, land, nations. Verse 31, same thing. So what we're seeing in chapter 10 is there's both unity and one common ancestry. Like it makes no sense for the people back then or now to get all riled up and think that one nation is greater than the other and say, we've got the same grandfather. Like you're my cousin if I go back far enough. So he says there's a unity, but it also says there's a diversity in that the world was divided into several different nations. Now it's important that we know that when we're talking about nations here, we should not think countries, not the way we have them today. This is not talking about geopolitical states. This is something closer to 
the concept of a tribe, of people with whom you share a culture, a common language. Uh, one of the best examples we may be able to think of from our recent history is Native American tribes. So they call themselves the Cherokee Nation or the Sioux Nation. Those aren't countries, they're peoples. And in the Bible, some of these nations and peoples are, are smaller tribes, and some grow to be quite large and powerful. But each has its own distinct cultural identity and its own place and often its own language. One other ex- example somebody used I think is kind of helpful. So you've got, you got to use it loosely because it's, it's got some similarities and some big differences. But trying to put it in terms we understand is to think about school districts, right? Now, I, I didn't go to school around here, but I know where I grew up, there were certain things that you connected to people in certain school districts. If you heard which school district somebody was a part of, like what high school they went to, you automatically had a set of assumptions. Maybe they were really good. You're like, oh, wow, that's, that class or that school over there, like they were always like, those are the big farm boys. That every year in football, they just run over people, man. Like that's what I associate that school with. Those over there, oh, those are the rich suburban kids. Like you can tell just by looking at the parking lot whenever you play against them, like totally different kind of cars. Or you go to, there's just something that clicks with each people group, right? And you automatically start assuming there's a different culture and you share an identity. Now those districts shared borders. So if I lived in this district, I have opinions of this one, but I didn't necessarily always like them and they didn't necessarily like me. But at the end of the day, because they were right next to me, we also shared a little bit of commonality. There were some things in our neighboring district that were like, yeah, they're not us, but they're kind of like us. But now if I went to the next district or the one after that, we got further and further and further apart. So that's it's a very rough and crude illustration, but that's kind of what these nations were like. They were gatherings of people where that shared an identity that you could say like, oh, they're the... Hethites, and you'd like know something about them. You knew where they were. You knew what they spoke. You knew what they were about. That's what we're talking about in the Bible when we talk about nations. Or you see also that word clans. That's just a word for families. So what we're talking about here is not political nations, but different ethnicities. In fact, when you get to the New Testament, the word is ethnos, which is where we get ethnicity. All right, so why do I bring that up? Is that just an interesting historical fact? No. This is really important to understand because when we get to the New Testament, we come to things like the Great Commission, where Jesus tells us to make disciples of all nations. And when he tells us that, he does not just mean make disciples of all countries. If he did, we'd be done. Have you ever thought about that? If that's what the mission was, the Great Commission would be over. Checkmark. Because there are disciples in all roughly 200 countries in the world. Nobody can actually pin down, because it all depends how you count. There's either 193, 197, or I think 204, depending on how you count a country. But what Jesus told us to do is make disciples of all nations, which means all 17,000 plus people groups. So we want disciples and churches that worship King Jesus in every single one of those 17,000 people groups. And all 17,000 of them find their beginning here in Genesis 10. 
That's why it's important that there are 70 of them because it's saying all of them come back here. So again, let's, what is the point? The point is that from one family, from one man, from Noah and his sons, all the diverse nations of the earth came about. Paul talks about this in Acts 17. There he says, he, meaning God, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So what does that mean? It means that every single one of the 70 nations in Genesis 10 and every single one of the 17,000 people groups today were made by God. And he sovereignly places them when and where he wants them in the world. And the thing that's even more amazing to me is guess what? God doesn't just appoint the dwelling places and times of nations. He appoints the times and dwelling places of people. Your address is not an accident. You were born when God wanted you, where God wanted you. And you are still alive today and live where you do today because God appointed it. God is the king of the nations and he rules over the dates and locations where every person lives. And he does it all for a purpose. I wonder what that purpose is. Thankfully, Paul tells us in Acts 17, he goes on. He says that God determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So God's purposes for when and where he puts people and nations is driven by worship. He's seeking worshipers from every nation and he's orchestrating world events to move peoples to bring this about. But what we see in Genesis 10 is that this table of nations is created and sovereignly ruled over by the king of the nations. But let's press in a little bit more because I think there's something to be learned about how the nations are arranged here in our list. First, notice that this list is not a a linear genealogy like we saw back in chapter 5. Chapter 5, it was just this guy had a son, that son had a son, that son had a son. It was just straight line, one person mentioned each generation. The goal of genealogies like that is to get you from point A to point B. They're kind of showing you how the generations got there. This one's doing a little something different because it's not just, if it's a family tree, it's not just a trunk. Not just dunk da dunk da dunk da dunk There's branches. It's showing you how the people spread and how this guy had these sons and then those sons had these sons. So it's a filled entry because it's trying to tell us more than just how did things get from this date to this date. It's saying, how did these peoples get from this place to all these other places? So here's how it's chopped up. The first section in verses 2 to 5 looks at the sons of Japheth. Now you'll notice that's the shortest section because these would have been the peoples who had the least contact with Israel. They lived the farthest away. They were the Gentiles who moved mainly north into Europe. They kind of went north, northwest. Some went northeast into Turkey, Greece. They all came from the sons of Japheth. The next group in verses 6 to 20 are the sons of Ham. And there's a lot more in that section because these are the peoples that Israel would have encountered often. In fact, if you look through the line, you might recognize a lot of the names 
And you might notice that there's quite the list of Israel's most notorious enemies. See, Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Nineveh. And tucked into the middle of the list, there's a spotlight on one guy. Most of this doesn't really give you much info about any one person. But here we have a spotlight on one guy, Nimrod. Everybody's favorite Bible name. Verses 8 to 12, we read about this guy Nimrod. And what do we read? We read that he was a mighty man. That that's means he was a warrior. That's not just saying like he was mighty. It's like a term for a warrior. He fought. He was a soldier. He, he waged war. And he was a mighty hunter. In other words, we've got these two descriptors that tell us this guy was violent. He fought people. He hunted animals. In fact, some people think that maybe the hunting was even meant he hunted after people. So this guy was a, presumably a bad dude. And we see that he was a kingdom builder. He built a lot of things. In fact, he's responsible for Babel, Assyria, and other anti-God kingdoms. Now, it's no surprise when we learn that the name Nimrod actually means we rebel. So here, in this line, what we find in Nimrod is a rebellious, violent, anti-God desire to build one's own kingdom. So is it any wonder that many of Israel's greatest enemies come from this line? As a side note, in case you're wondering, I found this fascinating, you might be wondering, why, would, why do we call people Nimrods? Like, why do we use it so different? The answer is actually Bugs Bunny. So in the 1940s, there was a cartoon in which Bugs Bunny and his, his um, adversary, Elmer Fudd, Elmer Fudd would always be trying to get Bugs Bunny, and Elmer Fudd was a hunter. And so, like the mighty hunter in the Bible, Bugs Bunny would say, oh, you poor little Nimrod. And so because he called him a Nimrod, he was actually, it was a tongue-in-cheek saying, you mighty hunter, you Elmer Fudd. But because he was mocking it, it kind of just became used to mock people as somebody who was incompetent, couldn't actually achieve the thing they were trying to do, like Elmer Fudd. Close parentheses. I know you were wondering where Nimrod came from. That one's for free. And then the last section is the sons of Shem, the Shemites, or as we know them, the Semites. And further down the list, you'll find a name, Eber. Eber is where we later get the name Hebrews. So this is the line through which the promise will be passed down through Israel. So that's a high-level overview. But what I want to do now is, we could get lost in the details, and you could say, we could see where this, this people probably went here, and this people probably went there. And that's fascinating, but I don't think it's the point. So let's zoom out even further, out of just Genesis, and let's see how this list of nations in Genesis 10 connects to the bigger story of the Bible. So come with me on a brief but whirlwind tour of God's plan for the nations. Are you ready? In Genesis 10, we see here the foundation of a united but diverse people from every nation— who will find blessing in the line of Shem. From this line will come, looking back now, the curse breaker, the serpent crusher, the one who will give rest, the one whose blood speaks a better word than Abel's, 
the sacrifice who provides the real covering for sin and the one in whom we find refuge from God's wrath. But all that is only hinted at here. Here what we see is all the nations start and spread in their own families, lands, languages, and nations. That's what we're shown. Okay, something's going on now. Our people have been mainly centralized, but now there's this new thing happening where all the people are scattering. Next week, in Genesis 11, we'll see that the reason the nations got divided into different languages and peoples was because they tried to unite against God and make a name for themselves. So it is actually a judgment that God scatters them all over the world into many different nations. So that's what happens next. You got nations going. Next time we'll see why. And then in Genesis 12, we see God's plan to use one nation to bless all the nations. He calls Abraham and promises him, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Hear this. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so the blessing is, kind of, is still coming along, and now we see there's going to be a nation that God makes, one nation set apart from all the other nations, but not just to stay within themselves. He says, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth in you. Okay? God confirms that later in Genesis 22 in other places where he tells Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So it's not just Abraham. It's something that's coming sometime in the future. Later, Genesis 49, Jacob blesses his son Judah and promises that from Judah shall come a ruler and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Not just the people, the peoples, all of them. Fast forward, there's a lot more. We're just skipping over some. Years later, we read in Psalm 22. We're familiar with Psalm 22 because it's the psalm where there's this one who cries out at the beginning saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the one who cries that we see is despised and mocked by those surrounding him, has his garments divided. But if you keep going by the end of the psalm, we hear the rest of the story. And we read this. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. So we've got a connection between this, this one who is suffering so radically and all the families of the nations worshiping God. So we got that in our minds and we build on it later in Daniel 7 where Daniel sees a vision. He said, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So we have a suffering king 
who is one like a son of man, who's given an eternal kingdom made up of all peoples, nations, and languages. Then we come to Isaiah 49. And Isaiah, he tells us about this, this coming figure called the servant of God. We read about this servant, that he's one who will suffer for the sins of God's people. He's one in whom God says, in him is my delight. But in Isaiah 49, we read this about that servant. God says to the servant, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In other words, this suffering servant, he says, I'm not just going to send you for Israel. That's too small. No, no, no. You need a bigger task because you are a greater king. So he says, I'm going to bring salvation to the nations, which will lead to worship in all the nations. Guess what we find in Malachi? Malachi 1. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God is showing us all throughout the Old Testament, little bit by little bit, he says, I got a plan. I got a plan not just for a people. I'm going to use a little people to make all the peoples into worshipers. But is it just an Old Testament thing? Well, we come to the New Testament. And there we find the one we've been looking for. We find this suffering servant. We find the one who was crushed for our iniquities. The one who said, that light, I am the light of the world. We find the king who was forsaken and mocked and killed so that all the nations of the earth could be saved and worship God. We see that there's salvation in no one else besides Jesus because there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And as we saw last week, that king has commissioned us to take his name to all the nations and make disciples. Luke 24, Jesus says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Now that's the mission that this king left us but he's under no false pretenses that that's a walk in the park. Jesus promises us that the mission is going to be hard and costly. Because later in the book of Matthew, Jesus says in Matthew 24, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. We've seen this one coming and he comes and he says, now take this message of, of my name and preach a message of, per, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in this name alone and take it to all the nations. But I got to tell you, all the nations will hate you as you do it. But lest we be discouraged, we see that though the mission is hard, the mission will not fail. Because just a few verses later, Jesus says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. He holds both together saying, it's going to be hard and it's going to happen. The message will go out to all the nations and then the end comes. 
And when the end comes, all the nations will appear before the king. Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Just like we've seen in Genesis. I hope, hope your ears perked up at a couple things there. One, there's still only two lines of people. There's still only blessing and curse. And the difference on that day when we stand before the king is how we responded to the king and to his sacrifice. Those who reject it will be permanently banished into eternal suffering. Just like we've seen throughout all of Genesis, sin leads to exile. But those who turn from their sin, those who forsake their sin and say, no, that's, that way leads to death. Jesus, I need you. You are where life is found. If you run to Jesus to save you, it says they will be gathered into a kingdom of eternal joy. That's what awaits these people who say, you're the real king. You're the king of the nations. And so we bow our knee to you and you alone. And when this gathering of people takes place, when we are gathered into the kingdom of eternal joy and we are there, guess what we find? Revelation 7. After this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. How can this be? How will there be people from all the nations? And why are we worshiping the Lamb? Revelation 5.9 says that we will praise him as the one who is worthy for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. This is where it's headed, friends. This is the same story that we've been tracking in Genesis 1 through 10. And all the nations worshiping Jesus, the king of the nations. And in Genesis 10, we're introduced to that story of all the nations. The Great Commission isn't a new idea in Matthew 28. It's back here in Genesis. So finally, how does Genesis 10 then connect to our story, to you and me? Let me close by giving you three quick thoughts. One, we need to remember that we are part of a bigger story. That following Jesus is not just about your personal salvation. God is not merely, 
And those are not throwaway words that I'm emphasizing. God is not merely saving a collection of individuals. He's making worshipers from every people and nation. And he's turning them into a kingdom. Jesus is not just a local thing. He's not a local deity. In the Bible, you see examples of this in Israel when some of their enemies thought they could take them in battle because they said, oh, their God, he's a God of the hills, not a God of the valleys. So if we get him in the valleys, we got him. It's not, it's not his turf. Jesus is king of the nations. It's all his. It's, he's not a local thing. He's not an American thing. He is the king of all nations and we're part of his global kingdom, which is our second application. Because we're part of his global kingdom, we care about the nations. We love the nations. Having a heart for the nations, that is not a missionary thing. That is a Christian thing. As followers of Jesus, we are not ethnocentric. We do not think our culture, our nation, and language are the best or the exclusive. We love people of all nations, all languages, and all cultures. You know why? Because Jesus loves people of all nations and all languages and all cultures. And we welcome people from all nations and languages and cultures into our church and into our home because our king worships people from all nations and languages and cultures around his throne. We are not nationalists. Seeking America first, we are kingdom citizens seeking his kingdom first because our king is king of the nations. And finally, because Jesus is king of the nations, we seek to make disciples of all nations. That means all that you think it means and more. We pray, we go. We train, we financially support, and don't leave this point out, we make disciples of the nations that are among us right here, right now, where God has sovereignly appointed us to live. We tell people about this Jesus and how he saves. We read the Bible together to help teach one another to observe all that he's commanded us. We pray together. We do whatever we can to help one another follow Jesus because Jesus is king of all the nations. And it all starts in Genesis 10. We're going to transition to the table now. And I want to read to you one more passage that sets up our time together in this table. Because when we come to this table, we come as citizens in this global kingdom. This is a table where brothers and sisters from all nations and tribes and peoples and languages gather. And we are diverse and we are united. Because there's only one way to come to this table. And it's through the king. So I'm going to go ahead and invite the servers to come forward as I read this. You can go ahead and get things ready. But I want you to hear these words that we've cited often before from Isaiah chapter 25. Talking about the feast that awaits but I want your ears to perk up and key in on the nations. 
Isaiah 25 says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. You hear though the all peoples, all nations. What I love at the end is when it's said on that day, Behold, this is our God. Who's our? It's all the nations. People from every tribe and tongue and nation and people are saying, He's our God. Because we've come to him through the king, through the broken body and poured out blood of Jesus, our Savior. So let me pray. And then what we're going to do is we're going to sing a song celebrating that he's the only way that we get to come to this table. And if you're here with us and you are a follower of this Jesus, if you have turned from your sin and cast yourself wholly on him, not, not trying to be good enough, not thinking you've come to church often enough, but saying, my only hope is that Jesus died in my place and was raised in my place. That's it. That's all I've got. If that's you, then we invite you to come forward when you're ready. We'll have servers both on both sides. We have bread that they will hand you, and there, there is gluten-free in the middle if that's something that you need. And then we have the cup as well. And so we'll come forward as we sing, and I invite you to hold on to it together, and we'll take it all as one, showing the unity amidst our diversity in how we take this meal together. So let me pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful that you have included us in your family. Lord, probably all of us, at least most of us in this room, are the nations. That we were not your people. But now, we are your people Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy through your son, Jesus. Because he came, you have welcomed in not just those in the line of Abraham, but those who are in the line of Abraham by faith. And so we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that by his sacrifice, we can draw near to you. That because the righteous suffered for the unrighteous, we have been brought to God. So I pray that as we take this meal together as one blood-bought family, we would celebrate both the unity we have in Christ and the diversity that he's reconciling all kinds of people from all kinds of cultures and making them into one new kingdom. We thank you for this. and We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.